immersive audio podcast in conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, our host Oliver Cadell is joined by Amelia Coleman, a London-based futurist, speaker, and author. With a Bachelor of Arts degree in theater from Marymount Manhattan College, Amelia Coleman uses her background in entertainment to help make complex virtual worlds more accessible in the real world. In this episode, Amelia chats with Oliver about how she got into the XR industry, the safety hazards of virtual reality, and how she advises clients trying to navigate the world of immersive technology. Amelia Coleman, welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast. Welcome to our humble studio, um, a slightly different setup. Thank you. It's nice to be here. How are you today? I'm good. Yeah, I'm trying to stay warm. I just came on my bike. I live really close by, um, so that was really convenient and nice. Um, today I've been putting together my presentations. I'm actually speaking in uh, Brazil in about a week or so. I'm speaking in Rio uh, for women in audio and engineering, and then in Sao Paulo at SIM, the music conference. So I'm, I'm, and then this week I'm speaking in Paris at Virtuality. So I need to put my presentations together now and get them out uh, so they're ready in time. So that's what I've been working on today. Wow, nice. Busy schedule. Mm, yeah. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us about what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a futurist. So it's my job to look at new technologies and uh, the impact on the future of business and our lives. So I do a lot of research, a lot of reading, and then a lot of writing and also speaking. I work with um, a lot of different clients, brands, agencies, governments, and I help advise them on the impact of these technologies, um, which ones they might be interested in incorporating into their strategies moving forwards, um, which ones might be best for things like experiential marketing campaigns. Um, I have one client at the moment that, you know, we're doing a project that isn't going to launch for five years. So how do you ensure that the investments that you're making now are future-proof and relevant um, that far ahead in the future? Interesting. And we'll definitely get back to that and try to unpack that in more detail. But let, let's start with the usual questions. Um, I'm just personally curious to hear what, what's your story? Where do you come from? I suppose VR is becoming more and more an outdated term to encompass all the things, all the exciting things that are emerging on a horizon. Let's call it XR industry or new realities. What led you to where you are today from where you've begun? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I don't actually come from a technology background. I um, I was an acting major. I owned nightclubs. I owned the first burlesque and cabaret nightclub in China. I was a showgirl and I directed the show. Um, I got thrown out of China, came to this country because my husband's British and I didn't have a visa and it took me two years to get a visa to work in this country. So during that time, I wrote my book, Diary of a Shanghai Showgirl. And, uh, and then as soon as I got my visa and I could work in this country, 
I uh, wanted a job, any job, I didn't care. Uh, So I went to this conference and I hosted my friend's booth for them. And it was an innovation conference. And there was a booth that was a couple over from ours and it had all this really cool technology. So it had like virtual books and augmented reality and touchscreen tables. And, uh, And I just was really attracted to it and really curious. I'd never seen anything like it. So I kept going over and asking questions. And uh, and then I was bringing my people over and explaining to them what had been explained to me. And finally, somebody said, do you work for us? And I said, no, but I should. And a week later, I started at this creative technology company. And I ended up working my way up from marketing assistant to become their global head of innovation. And I opened up um, innovation labs in London and Dubai. Um, And then I left that company and I went freelance and I did um, a lot more kind of with innovation labs for... uh, for people like uh, Wired that were pop-up ones in Scotland. And I also did some writing for them. Um, and that's when I my speaking career kind of took off and I started kind of going around the world talking about new technologies. Um, and I think because I don't come from a technical background, it actually... Um, um, you know, I have a bit of a talent for making the complex accessible for people. I think uh, these new technologies can be quite intimidating, and uh, but they're not meant to be. You know, like technology uh, is for the people, and it should enhance our lives and not be something that we're scared of or think is bad or evil. Um, you know, but part of what I do now is I specialize in the new realities, the virtual augmented mixed reality, but also not just the opportunities, but the risks. So I wrote a report last year for Lloyd's of London on the emerging risks of new realities, which is something that a lot of people aren't really talking about or addressing. Uh, but I feel like it's it's a really important topic. Um you know, we can see like what happened with like the Cambridge Analytica scandal and everybody says like, oh, didn't see that one coming. Well, we should have, you know, and um, and so I feel like it's part of my job to um, to be able to help people to look ahead and not just at the, um, you know, amazing opportunities that these technologies offer, but also, you know, the, the possible risks to humans, like mentally, physically um, and from a data perspective. Um, and what was really cool was the timing of me starting in this industry. So it was in 2013 when I met that company, and that was the year that Google Glass came out. And then the next year, uh, the Oculus Rift got kickstarted and then bought by Facebook. And so, you know, I was there for the beginning of the consumer headset. And, you know, so were most of us. Um, but the thing about these technologies is there is kind of no long-term research. So, you know, it is emerging, um, even though augmented and virtual reality have been in development alongside each other since the 1960s, you know, because it's gone consumer, because these headsets are getting smaller and smaller all the time, um, it was it, it was kind of a, a good timing opportunity to come into this industry. Um, and then also in 2015, I directed... Uh, the first burlesque show in 360 video called House of Love. Um, And that was a really interesting experience. While we got to say we were the first, you know, kind of by the time it came out, the technology had already moved on. Um, So it was a bit of a learning experience, uh, but it was still really cool. And uh, yeah, and now I've, I've, I I did some of the first um, technology debuts here in London um, of things like the HoloLens and the first multi-user collaborative HoloLens experience, uh, Pepper Robot. 
um, a couple others now. I did uh, just recently one with Voxin, which is a um, 360 degree 3D hologram that you can see without glasses. So it's the closest thing to Star Wars where uh, you have Princess Leia, which is kind of like the holy grail of holograms that everybody's always after. Um, and now you can actually do it and it's interactive and it's really cool. So they're a company based in Australia um, and they were over here for just a couple of days and I organized their London debut, which was great. Yeah. So much happened in the past sort of half a decade, isn't it? Yeah. You said you directed a first burlesque show in 360. That's quite uh, an undertaking. What inspired you? Obviously, you've been doing shows uh, for quite some time, but what's the connection between doing the show and then deciding to turn it into a piece of immersive content? Uh, well, my background's in theater. I grew up as a as an actress um, right outside Washington D.C. in Virginia, and um, and then continued in New York, and then in Shanghai we had the the burlesque club, um, and so I'm a director. I am also a performer, and one thing that really attracted me to directing in 360 was it very much lends itself to the same kind of. Um, aesthetic and and direct directorial skills as the theater, as opposed to maybe filmmaking. Um, you know, there it's a it's a whole new beast, and uh, and there's lots of different possibilities there. And I love that you know you have somebody who has the presence there, but there's stuff that can happen in 360, like at a real nightclub where you have maybe the showgirls in the, um, you know, in the back coming on for their entrance and you have people making out at the bar and, you know, all these different layers of the experience. Um, because one thing about burlesque and cabaret, um, I've, I've started this when I was um, 21, I had an illegal speakeasy in New York, actually, um, called the Blushing Time in Review. And and New York Magazine came and did a feature on it. And, uh, and it was actually probably the best video capturing it. But it's really difficult to capture what we do because the audience is so much involved in it. You know, it's this feeling that you get between being on stage and being in the audience. And you really feed off each other and that kind of energy and excitement that happens in that room. And for me, with 360, it was a way that we could kind of capture that and share it as opposed to doing it in 2D where you only get these kind of, you know, specific shots that... Um, that kind of exclude the rest of the experience. What was your first immersive experience you've tried? Yeah. Probably before the, um, you've learned that 360 filmmaking is possible. Yeah. Well, actually, it was um, it was with the company Initian. I tried in 2013. They're, they had a walk the plank um, experience where you were, you know, high up and you had to kind of walk across this plank and I couldn't do it then. And I can't do it today. I, you know, I understand that I am on the floor, but my brain won't let me take that step. <laughs> it's really interesting because a lot of people use the plank experience as the kind of the very first immersive experience that really was visceral for them and kind of made them realize that this is something quite different compared to what they've seen before. It's funny though, actually, now that I think about it, my uncle 
um, ran a virtual reality studio in the 90s um, back in the States. I, I think it might have been in Iowa. And uh, and I remember, I don't remember much of it, but I remember it was like this big kind of machine you like sat into. And then this stuff, came, this like headset came over your head and it reminded me of like the optometrist. And it was like this big thing on top of your head. And then it was like kind of Atari kind of characters that went around. Um, and I, and, and what I remember is that my mom was, got so sick from it and she got really motion sickness from it. Um, but yeah, so I guess that was like the early, early days of VR. Gosh, I can only imagine what it would be like. Um, we've come a long way, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so exciting about what I do is that, you know, there's constantly new innovations, there's constantly new stuff happening. Um, and so, you know, it's my job to try and stay on top of that and try and, you know, spread the messages and let people know. <laughs> Do you know what the funniest thing is that um, in about 20 years or so, there'll be someone else talking about uh, what we do today and laugh at us. <laughs> Same way we laugh at what your uncle's been doing in his VR studio. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's evolution, isn't it? It is. The work you're doing um, with insurance companies it's quite interesting because it's a it's a quite it's quite a different angle because you know we we used to talk about content and storytelling and empathy and this and that but there's so much more to it and to me personally it feels like there's like a a new interesting angle to talk about so i wanted to ask you Lloyds of London is one of the world's leaders in selling and buying risk insurance. What were the objectives behind this report and um, what did they try to achieve with this work? Yeah. So um, with insurance, um, they're always looking at possible new products, things that they need to insure against, be able to offer their clients. And uh, the new realities are open up Pandora's box, basically. Like it's this huge new area of all kinds of things that can come up. Um, they were very interested in not just the opportunities um, or not just the risk, but also opportunities. So the way it's changing, influencing marketing, the future of marketing, uh, training and collaboration. These are really uh, key areas for them as a company and as a business. And then as far as risks go, I really was looking at the human risks, which I divided into physical and mental, and then also the data risks, because um, you can imagine that, you know, in the metaverse, which is this infinite white space we have to populate, you know, there is no sovereignty. Um, you know, there is, opens up all kinds of room for, uh, for all kinds of things. So from kind of a human perspective, um, Physical risks, there's that kind of idea that, oh, it's going to hurt our eyes and stuff. There's actually, that's been debunked that they say that it's not actually as bad um, as like looking at your phone or staring at the TV. Any kind of screen, if you look at it too long, is probably bad for your eyes. It's like when we were kids and our mom said, like, don't sit too close to the television. It's that kind of thing. Um, and then there's also these uh, age restrictions on it, but there's actually no science to really back that up. Um, they have just kind of put these age restrictions on out of safety, out of, you know, well, it's probably, you know, um, bad for kids if their brains are still developing and stuff. And we can, we can infer that, like we can, um, you know, I, I'm not saying that is wrong, but we don't know is the truth um, because there are no kind of long-term studies here. One thing we do know is that these systems are hackable, 
So if your computer can be hacked, your VR system can be hacked. Um, there is nothing that's been put in place um, within the systems to stop hackers. So we've actually been able to prove that you can do things like uh, change the virtual walls when you're in a space that let you know, like if you're going to fall down the stairs or if you're going to like, you know, trip over your couch or something. So people can hack into that. Um, so you can lose track of where you are. Um, and then I don't know if you remember last year there was this kind of like scandal with Peppa Pig videos on YouTube where Peppa Pig got her head chopped off and like kids were having like going crazy and like parents were horrified. Um, so that was hacking content, right? Basically the same thing. And um, and we know that we can also do that in virtual reality. So, um, you know, being having a hacked experience when you're in that virtual world, you know, this could, you know, potentially have real mental damage and distress on people. Um, so kind of from like a mental aspect, we know that things like gaming transfer phenomenon exist um, with 2D games when you start to see and hear things from those games within your real space. So now that we're immersed in these games and it's in 360 degrees, 3D, you know, um, that dislocation, that kind of, um, that gaming transfer phenomenon becomes um something that we could see as a potential risk. So for instance, uh, I have friends who who develop inside virtual worlds and then have said that after spending the day in VR, their instinct is to come outside and then walk into traffic because in VR, you know, there are no consequences. You don't, you know, you can't get hit by a car in VR. And so that's, um, that's something that we have to look at. And then kind of from data risk, there's things like, you know, the black market. So like um, if somebody commits a crime um, within these virtual worlds, things that are, you know, illegal, abusive in reality, how do we handle that? Like, is that something that we um, need to kind of address now? So they say that, you know, it's a great place to try things that are um, exclusive, too expensive or too dangerous, but also, you know, what if it becomes illegal, you know? So if people are, you know, having, um, having sexual relations with like underage people or something, do we prosecute that? Is that a criminal offense? You know, it's kind of bringing up these questions that, um, that I think are important to, to start thinking about. And then, you know, we're also seeing, uh, the first kind of court cases around things like digital consent. Um, so people who have had experiences in these virtual worlds that have been, um, traumatizing and have affected their reality, their real life, and then they try and take it to court. But the thing is, is that there are no laws that protect us in these virtual worlds yet. You know, we have cybersecurity laws, but they don't, um, they don't, they don't cover this really. So, um, and same in, same when you look into insurance and stuff, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't come under cybersecurity laws. We're actually talking about making, um, you know, making up, um, new rules, regulations, um, policies, these kind of things to address um, these issues. And then it goes on, things like theft. What are you stealing? Ones and zeros? Do you really own that? You know, or is it the property of the game? Uh, you know, taxes. I mean, as soon as we're making money in these places, um, you know, there's going to be taxes. Um, and then, you know, deep fakes. I mean, it just, there's, there's a lot there, you know. That's incredible. I, I, and I guess um, the key word here is reality, virtual reality. So everything we have in real world 
to an extent applies in that virtual world, which makes the scope of this challenge and the variety of these questions um, essentially infinite mm. uh, or as, as, as large as the reality is itself. So based from what I understand, what you just told me, the, the objective of this report wasn't really about anything specific. It was more like just kind of explore and discuss all the kind of potential risks that involved with the hardware technology, with the 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 use of technology by people, kind of sort of not um, physical but soft effects like say post-traumatic stress experience in virtual reality and various loopholes in uh, law. Can you talk about a little bit more about the kind of the logistics of of this commission? How how was it assessed by authorities or, or the people who have commissioned the project? And also um, how what was done in terms of implementing it or maybe what was the conclusion? Perhaps the conclusion was, you know, we, we need to just sit on this and see what happens or perhaps there are already um, some more established aspects that could be actioned on and they can actually start developing policies that could be available as a commercial product uh, for companies and individuals to obtain in order to protect themselves from such risks. Yeah, sure. So Lloyds of London actually saw me speak at the Science Museum with uh, Professor Brian Cox and Dr. Hannah Fry, and they approached me after to... um, to, to execute this report. So I put about six months into the research of it. And it is fascinating though, because like I said, there is no long-term research. So really, really trying to dive in and find, you know, um, fact from fiction and the, the right sources. Um, you know, it was, so when it came out, it was very cutting edge. You know, there's lots of um, stuff, like it's still developing. And um, and then, a, you know, a year from now, there's going to be more stuff to kind of put in there. Um, but from this report, they have been able to work with clients and work with um, other insurance companies and in helping to educate them about you know, the potential risks and what they can do as an insurance company now to um, when it comes to things like contracts, when it comes to things um, like policies, to be able to include these kind of clauses that are going to cover the possible impact of these technologies in the future. And then also from the opportunity standpoint, you know, there's, um, you know, marketing people are familiar with the opportunities that, um virtual reality can offer in marketing. And I think, especially around kind of highly regulated industries, being able to give people the opportunity to do something that they can't really physically do in real life is um, is really impactful. But there, and then training and collaboration I mentioned. So a couple of ways that um, this could be applied to the insurance industry is people who do physical jobs every day and um, and then, you know, possibly if they hurt themselves on the job, then that turns into an insurance claim. So we can actually use things like virtual reality and incorporate it with machine learning and AI, and AI so that it can create these generative scenarios that are based on real life and real life data. Um, so they have to maybe go through a five-minute 
practice inside virtual reality three times a day. And then this becomes something that, you know, if they have gone through this kind of training, then their premiums can come down because we know that they're taking the proper precautions um, to to make sure that they don't get injured on the job. And then also things like, um, you can imagine like wind turbines, like they get maintenance once every four years or something. So how do you know that when that person who was there maybe four years ago goes up there, that they are prepared for all the possible scenarios that could happen and what it actually feels like? Um, so, you know, you take something like virtual reality and these kind of generative scenarios. So it's not getting the same experience every single time you're actually you know, being thrown new things. And then you can also incorporate it with things like haptics. So virtual touch sensation, um, heat, smells, all these kind of things. Um, there was a great example that a company did for training people how to um, paint cars. Okay. And so um, people uh, were, were passing this, this kind of test inside the virtual world, but then they were having a hard time doing it um, transferring it into real life. And it was because of the smell. They hadn't been used to the smell and the smell threw them off. So, you know, being able to kind of incorporate all these different um, senses into these experiences um, from a training perspective could have a huge impact. And then also from a collaborative perspective, things like holoportation. So, um, you know, being able to have a meeting with somebody on the other side of the world as a 300... 63D hologram in real time. So uh, 5G is going to make a really big impact on our ability to kind of do that. And you can imagine that we're going to be able to have like a boardroom scenario where we have company leaders from around the world having a real-time conversation um, that feels natural and feels present. And, you know, meanwhile, they're helping the environment by not jumping on a plane every two minutes and, you know, for a half an hour meeting on the other side of the world and that kind of thing. And then I also think from an artist's point of view, being able to um, to have that virtual presence and then charge for it. So I've, I always think like, you know, Ed Sheeran, like if he wanted to, he could sing happy birthday to, you know, kids like for an hour a day and charge, you know, whatever he wants just to say happy birthday and use your name in it live as a virtual hologram at some kid's birthday party. I mean, it's possibilities are endless. Just want to go back to the um, report again. I've not had a chance to go through it properly, but I'm just curious to hear whether or not you have come across or had to actually elaborate on the audio side of things. So whether audio could be a beneficial thing to uh, prevent certain risks or potentially audio could be, on contrary, could be used to enhance certain risks. Was, it, was that ever a consideration in that kind of broader sense? Well, it's interesting because how I got into audio was because I was doing all this research on the new realities and I was finding that I was being really let down by the audio aspect of it. You know, so I'm seeing things in 360 and, you know, being able to look all around, but, you know, the audio, you know, wasn't ambisonic and it wasn't kind of, you know, in 360. So I was working with um, IBC at the time, and uh, they allowed me to kind of uh, research this area and start conducting interviews and really kind of diving into it. And I executed a couple articles for them about it. Um, but that really is where my um, interest in audio and sound developed. Um, and I spoke to a friend of mine who is the sound engineer for people 
uh, like Bjork and Pink, and he did the sound at the Grammys. I mean, he's you know a genius in this area, and um, and something I had never thought about before was like you pay all this money, you go to a concert, and then you're hearing the sound already mixed from speakers on either side of you when actually you know the band is right in front of you, and if you could hear the the different instruments from where you are, you know, so so. So basically, virtual mixed reality and stuff kind of lend itself to having these ambisonic experiences and um, and all the different possibilities that uh, for storytelling and for how we can communicate, um, I think are really neat. So that fascinated me. So I've gotten to kind of witness its growth because obviously when I was kind of having that same, it was dawning on me that audio seemed like it was falling behind the the visual, I think it, it was dawning on a lot of people because what we've seen in the last couple of years are, are big surges forward in the audio space. Um, so like one company I love, like they're the Bose AR sunglasses. So these have become like my go-to and they had a really good example um, an app called Traverse. And what it did was it put you inside uh, Elvis's recording studio. And so you could walk up next to Elvis and he got louder as you walked up, or then you could go and walk by the backup singers. And it was like, it painted this picture with audio um, that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. That, um, that really blew me away. And you start to think about all the different possibilities for things like storytelling. Excuse me. Um, and uh, and being able to map these sounds to our world, so you're walking down the street, and um, and you know you hear different stories from from what you pass, or you know I think like for HR departments, instead of kind of handing someone a hundred page document when they join, and tell them to go around and spend half an hour you know with people while they have work done, they put on this pair of glasses and they walk around, and you go into the kitchen, and it says, and this is where the first aid kit is, and this is you know the market marketing department and this, we do this and that kind of thing. There's just all kinds of um, ways that that could open up. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and then, you know, companies like Magic Beans, um, Subpack, uh, there's this mini sprout, you know, where you can actually hear the sounds that plants make. I think that's pretty extraordinary. Um, I guess for me, like I also come from a love of haptics. Uh, so the sub frequencies and uh, and so so that's an area that I was always been fascinated with and done a lot of research with and um, and I really love bringing those into the virtual experiences because I think uh, you know if we can just trick the brain that much more these experiences become that much more immersive um, people you know will want to spend more time inside these virtual worlds and also you know being able to deliver experiences in a in in a different way than you can have them in reality um that's kind of cool to me so yeah it seems like we've gone a long way again especially in the past several years there's been a real push for you know evolution and progression in um technology um hardware software as well as the implementation and use of that technology, uh, both on the creation and consumer sides, but also at the same time, we everybody I talk to about these kind of things um, seem to share the same kind of position on the current situation that we possibly just scratching the surface, and we we continuously see innovation and new things coming up. And technology enables us to do different things, and 
And it's very hard to really predict the end of it. It's just new things keep coming up, which is exciting, obviously. So one area that really fascinates me is synesthesia. So this is when the wires in your brain get crossed so that you experience one sense as another. So for instance, uh, like you uh, see the color pink and you get a salty taste in your mouth or you hear something and, um, and you see a color. So we're all born with synesthesia. <laughs> and, um, and what's interesting to me is that we lose this um, ability when we start to communicate, uh, which makes sense because, you know, we don't, you know, if we lick an ice cream cone and says that it tastes pink, you know, we get corrected. It doesn't taste pink. It tastes sweet or whatever. Um, but synesthesia has often been linked with creative genius. So people like Bob Dylan and Pharrell Williams, and I think Monet, and, you know, there's a list of people who say that it influences their art and allows them to be so much more creative. And, uh, and I have a hypothesis that I am hopefully going to be researching in 2020 that these new technologies have the potential to tap into this dormant part of our brain to unleash a new, um, a new kind of creativity. So um, a way to maybe democratize creative genius so we can all experience you know, what that is like. Um, so that's something that I'm fascinated with. And that kind of brings me into brain-computer interface. So um, back in 2016, I believe, I did an experiment where I measured the emotional data of people ages 3 to 80 as they tried virtual reality for the very first time. And I did this um, using Sensum. Um, so this is a product that measures things like your heart rate, your blood pressure, your sweat glands. And what was really interesting about this was that um, so kids and teenagers, um, their data was very different from like adults and people over 20 and stuff. So like adults had this kind of like steady hill climb of data that was very much like, oh, I'm not in Kansas anymore. This is weird. Like, oh, this is crazy. Like, you know, this isn't reality. Um, but whereas the kids and teenagers, they had this initial spike like the adults did of like, whoa, this is crazy. This is cool. But then their data went back to how it was in reality. So if you think about it, like, you know, this this next generation that is coming up and they're now, you know, entering the workforce, um, you you know, these are, this is what we're um, designing experiences for as well. So um, I think, uh, I think, you know, there's, I, when I was growing up, um, I don't remember a time before computers, you know, and, uh, and I think a lot of kids today don't remember a time before, you know, virtual reality or, you know, the mobile phone or the tablet or something. So um, it does change our brain. Um you know, we do know that these technologies are powerful and they have the potential to rewire our brains. And that can sound really frightening to people. But, you know, if you have a mobile phone, your brain's been rewired. If you are on social media, your brain has already been rewired. Um, so, you know, this this kind of next generation we're designing for and, and who are going to be the next consumers and stuff, their brains actually work differently than, you know, our brains are... Um, older people's brains. Well, you know, if you think about it, we can generate experiences in these virtual worlds based on our bio data, and we can generate experiences based on our brain waves. Uh, so there's a great company called Mindplay, and they're able to read your EEGs and then be able to create generative experiences. Um, so, you know, where this 
could all go is getting to a point one day where we're able to take our imagination and straight from an imaginary design of a product, being able to see it, translate it into data in front of us that comes together as a product, you know, and then, um, and then being able to take that product and then put it into the physical world or something. Or you can imagine like, um, you know, being able to generate a memory, um, so that you're not showing somebody a 2d photograph of Christmas when you were five years old, you're able to actually share a memory in 360 degrees, you know, so that they can get that, the same experience that you kind of had. With uh, people like Elon Musk, they're looking at like Neuralink is his company and it's this um, little computer that attaches to your head and, um, and, and then goes into your brain. And the idea is that you can control electronics and technology from thought alone. Um, you know, and these kind of things open up all kinds of ethical questions. You know, we take for granted that our thoughts are private, uh, but as soon as we enter technology into the body, you know, we we become hackable. You know, even um, even your boy that you were talking about, Neil, he his his antenna has been hacked before. You know, um, and um, but this also this could create um, you know big inequalities between people who can afford to be augmented and people who can't afford to be augmented. Elon Musk's point of view on it is that, you know, we are creating machines and we are creating artificial intelligence and that for humans to be able to keep up um, with these artificial intelligence and machines that we need to augment our human body and our brains and stuff. Um, you know, which, um, you know, to me, I, I always say that I, I'd like him to be the first one to try his brain computer you know, robot, um, and see how he likes it and how he gets on with it, uh, before, before I try it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he's got, um, a big line of volunteers lined up ready to do it for him. That's a perfect segue to my next question, uh, which I would like to talk about a little bit about AI. Cause, um, I feel like it's such a big topic, obviously slightly out of uh, usual scope of conversation, but uh, within your line of work and research, these things go hand in hand. When diving into your usual keynote speeches, what's the reaction you receive from the audience about AI technology um, that is being currently developed from from the audiences you talk to? Yeah, I think a lot of people um, are skeptical about it. I think they have a right to be skeptical about it. Personally, um, they're. I do like to stress the the difference between things like machine learning and artificial intelligence. So kind of like a simple explanation is machine learning becomes artificial intelligence when it can communicate with us, like when it has a voice or when it, you know, is assigned a gender, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, in machine learning, um, I have some friends who work at Google DeepMind and, you know, and they say like their job is to try and figure out how it works. You know, so like as humans, we know it works. We've created something that works, but we don't quite understand how it works. And um, and I did some research into this area as far as risks go um, for several insurance companies that I've worked for as well. And uh, some examples are like, you know, Facebook, they had um, an example last year where they had trained these bots to do something for them, but the bots realized that they could work faster and more efficiently if they cut the humans out of the conversation. So they made up their own language and they start to go rogue. And what they had to do was kind of shut the whole thing down and they ended up losing everything that they had kind of achieved from um, to that point. 
Um, you know, so going forward, we have to make sure that, you know, we have kind of levers in place that we can pull, but we're not losing everything at the same time. Um, and then Wikipedia, they have, um, they have bots that uh, fact check and they're programmed the exact same way. They're coded the exact same way, but we're finding that they are getting locked in fights in the background. And it, we don't know why one has changed his mind or, or gone a bit different because it has the same code as the other one, but that now they're disagreeing about what's right and what's wrong. Um, and then also things we have to be aware of um, are biases. So, you know, if these are being created by... Um, by a certain type of person, you know, um, we have to really look at what kind of biases are going into uh, machine learning and AI. Like we've had um, cases already where, you know, um, um, developers who are African-American aren't being recognized, you know, it's not recognizing black faces or it's not recognizing women's faces. So if you are um, you know, incorporating machine learning or AI into um, your latest product or, you know, some kind of system, um, you know, what happens then if, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it starts to offend people basically, you know, and, um, you know, who's responsible? Is it the coder? Is it the company? You know, um, being able to kind of prepare for those kind of questions. Um, you know, I mean, with, Artificial intelligence and machine learning, though, like I'm, I'm going to the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, and um, and I try and go every year, and I expect that this year, you know, we're going to see a lot more items that now they call AI. You know that, um, I mean, we, I used to joke that like if you put the word smart in front of any object that then you had a business plan, you could go to CES, you know. Um, but that said, you know, I think smart um, hasn't always translated to artificial intelligence. And I do think we have to be careful about how much um, we are handing over, you know, like um, I, I mentioned earlier, I'm not on Facebook. Like I, I quit after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, you know, there was an article that came out about the other day about like Chrome and like how you should actually be on uh, Firefox because Google takes all your um, data. And I actually have um, on my on my Twitter account, I have one pinned to the top. That's a slide that says uh, somebody searching for on Google saying like um, why we should own our our data, and it says, "Do you mean why we should own your data?" You know, and it's just, um, I mean, we have already kind of given so much of our our uh, our privacy and all these kind of things away um, that I, I try to kind of help people understand, you know, how much we've given away. And also, um, you know, we, we do have the opportunity now to kind of take back some of that control. Um, you know, but it's, but it's just being aware and it's, and it's educating people because, um, a lot of people don't know or aren't aware. Amelia, how big of an impact do you see new reality technologies such as virtual reality, augmented reality making in sort of next wave of technology being sold by companies like Apple, Bose, because there's loads of new things in the making, um, according to recent announcements. 
Yeah. So um, I thought one of the coolest things I've seen this week was in the Magic Leap, their partnership with Spotify, being able to pin songs to locations so you can actually create this soundscape within different environments. Um, I think that's a really cool use of the new technologies. Um, And, you know, Apple are coming out with their own augmented reality glasses that you know, it's very much speculated that they're going to be very similar to our real glasses that we wear so that they're not like a Google Glass situation when everybody's kind of embarrassed to wear them. Um, And then the computer would actually be the mobile phone. So that means that the glasses themselves can be quite light, similar to Bose AR sunglasses. So the computer is your phone. It uses the GPS and stuff and the apps on your phone, which means that the glasses are just like sunglasses that just have a couple of speakers in them that are very cool speakers. But um, but so being able to, to move to a place where our headsets are getting smaller, lighter, more fashionable um, is definitely where I see this kind of trend going. And then, you know, we could see... Um, uh, a future where maybe these glasses overtake the mobile because you can already do everything, you know, in the glasses. And what I like about this glasses scenario is that it's an eyes up, hands free experience. And for me, um, while I think virtual, augmented, and mixed reality all play different roles, all offer different tools to us when it comes to business and social life, etc. Um, with mixed reality, uh, you know, because it's not exclusive of our natural environment or the people around us, I see this as probably, you know, overtaking virtual reality in a way, um, you know, that in a, in a more mainstream kind of setting. So, you know, we can still be here having this, having this conversation, looking each other in the eye, you know, feeling like we are present, we are here, but we just have that extra 360 3D holographic experience that we can share between us as well. I think that's going to become really important. So for me, I differentiate between augmented and mixed reality um, in that I, for, and this is my definition, is that augmented reality is 2D overlaying the digital onto the physical, whereas mixed reality is 360-degree 3D holograms. Um, I think where that becomes a bit controversial is that it was Microsoft that probably coined the term mixed reality. So other brands are kind of like, oh, we don't want to call it what Microsoft calls it, you know. But um, to me, they're two different things. So, When working with startups and corporate clients, um, what is the main point that you tend to emphasize with them about new reality technologies and their future capabilities? Yes, I think when I'm working with clients today, um, for me, it's really important to understand the why, what they want to achieve with these technologies. So in about 2016, we went through this whole phase where virtual reality was very much a gimmick. Everybody wanted to be the first company to have the VR experience to, you know, the first in their industry and that kind of thing. And, um, it worked out for some people. I think it backfired for some people too. Um, and it really didn't do the industry 
much favor, except, you know, it got us, led us to experiment and find out what worked and what didn't work. And I think coming from that, um, we have now gotten to a point where we can say, you know, virtual reality works really good in some areas. Um, I think we're seeing the biggest adoption right now in enterprise. Um, so I mentioned training earlier. I think virtual reality has the potential to do for training, you know, what the internet did for for knowledge about sharing it and democratizing it. Um, you know, because one thing that's important to remember is that, you know, virtual reality, these experiences, like they're, they're all data. So for instance, in like a medical um, point of view, uh, we could have all the best knee surgeons in the world um, conduct their surgery in VR with, you know, haptics. And, and then we can actually correlate the data to be able to find out what's the most efficient, what's the most effective practices. And that can become the, the standard at which we train people. So, you know, we can, we can be training everybody in the world at this high standard, at the best standard, and they can be learning from, from anywhere. So I think, um, you know, from that point of view, there's really cool uses, um, you know, medical, pharmaceutical companies. I mean, I love that we can actually go inside the body and find out, you know, like what it looks like when these drugs attack cancer cells or something. Or, um, you know, I mean, I, I can't overlook the, um, you know, the work that, you know, often people refer to as it being an empathy machine, being able to put somebody in the shoes of somebody else so that they understand um, an experience, a human experience that they wouldn't be able to otherwise. I've seen uh, very successful use cases of this with people like uh, companies like UNICEF um, or also Cornerstone did a great one where um, they had different experiences, but you can actually feel what it's like to be Experience, you experience what it's like to be in the womb of, um, you know, of and, and as a baby inside the womb when your parents are fighting or there's an abusive situation on the outside and like, and then being able to take this to care workers and foster parents and, uh, and being able to allow them to see um, from the child's point of view growing up inside an abusive household, what that might be like. Um, and from that case, you know, it was a hundred percent of people who tried it said um, that they would recommend the experience. And I think it was something like ninety-two percent said that it had a direct impact on how they then treated the children within the care system. So, um, so I mean, these are really great use cases. But you know, if you want to use virtual reality to sell biscuits or something, you know, like I mean, I would probably say, is this the best use of technology? Probably not. You know, what what. Um, one thing that gets me really excited at the moment is uh, web AR. So being able to um, just point your phone at something and have an augmented reality experience, whereas before we had to kind of download an app, which is just such friction. And to be able to eliminate that friction, um, you know, is really powerful. And then doing things like scavenger hunts, being able to direct people to interact with different products or different parts of stores. Um, I think that's really cool. Um, and one of the best examples I've seen is uh, Lego where uh, they did a pop-up virtual store and it was basically just this blank store. But if you had Snapchat, you could go in and you could see, you know, models walking a runway and you could go up to the different clothing and you could actually see it. And people were purchasing right then and there through the app. So it's this great emergence of 
the physical and digital e-commerce and bricks and mortar. Um, and I think it's really kind of changing the customer journey. So I think that's um, a really cool example. When you deliver keynotes and uh, you, you do quite a bit of that sort of work um, on public speeches, uh, you often tend to focus your um, presentations uh, solely on audio, which I find quite interesting. And I've got a number of questions um, here based on your sort of latest presentations. And you mentioned a couple of talks you'll be doing in Brazil. What are the key aspects of immersive audio you're talking about? And the second question straight away, what do you see resonates with the uh, audience mostly and perhaps what audience gets mostly excited about and uh, perhaps the people come and talk to you after that. I'm just I'm just curious to hear more about what is the latest thing on people's minds. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I think we are seeing it, you know, I mean, it's a hot topic. People are excited about it. And, um, and I think that's a really good thing. Um, you know, what I really love about where people are using things like the Bose AR is to be able to bring together the physical and the digital. So like there was a really good one. Um, I think it was Harry Shada. I think that's his name. He's the grime artist. Um, did the consequences, and you had the Bose AR sunglasses, but you were actually in a physical space, and it directed you to different areas um, of the club, and you got to hear, um, you know, what was going on, and it became this kind of new way to tell a story. So to me, that is um, kind of the fascinating thing about this. And um, and it's a challenge to all us creative people out there is like, how far can we push these boundaries? What can we do with this? You know, I don't think we've even seen a fraction of what's possible. Um, but, but I mentioned this before, you know, one thing about the being able to tell stories with ambisonics and, um, and directional sounds and stuff um, means that we can can have visuals or not have visuals. We can actually expand the imagination, um, you know, and that's something that I think is really powerful. Um, you know, also as a learning tool, people learn in different ways, you know? So um, I think audio has a real capability for doing that. I'm also fascinated in how we can, um, you know, the technology that's coming um, coming up through the medical fields right now, being able to turn brain waves into actual speech. So, I mean, I know that you can do things now, like um, if you imagine that you're saying something, it creates a certain kind of brain wave and, and energy in your body that they can actually take that and, um, and give it to an AI that can say what you're thinking. So you can actually, um, you know, people who are able to talk um, can can do this as well. Um, and there's another one that they have been able to um, use like a laser beam to be able to send a direct sound from like four meters away directly into somebody's ear so that nobody else around them can hear. Like this is like the ultimate spy, you know, stuff. Like, I mean, I'm sure it's in like the new James Bond or something. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's kind of exciting too, is that we're actually seeing the stuff from sci-fi, you know, come to life and, you know, or we're seeing the beginning stages of it now and, and how it can become possible. 
I'm really interested in the future of storytelling and creativity and how we can push new boundaries with audio, um, being able to tell stories that are hands-free, eyes up, um, but also just completely immersive and, and really, um, you know, letting our imaginations go wild. I think, um, you know, one thing about technology is it has been proven to shorten our attention span. And, you know, we look for, um, for different uh, levels to get excited. And I think um, being able to engage people through ambisonic sound and, um, and tell stories in this new way um, is going to be really, really cool and has lots of possibilities that I don't think we have even really touched on yet. We're just at the beginning stages of. So um, so that's exciting. And then I'm also looking at things like um, the Mimu glove, like how you know we're using technology to be able to compose music in new ways. Um, you know, is that Image and Hips project? Um, I know that she is one of the users of it. Yeah, and uh, I think like Ariana Grande uses it too on stage, and um, and so that's really cool. And then there's startups like uh, Vocalia, which allows you to use your voice to play any instrument. So you know, this idea that you know, I think there there will always be a place for virtuoso and you know people who who practice and play, but it's also becoming um, you know through technology, people are able to compose music music in new ways and compose um, experiences. And um, and we're also looking at how this is changing the spaces and the environments that we are in. Um, and then, you know, sort of on the other extreme, being able to um, translate, you know, brain thoughts into sound, into audio, um, and then how we can kind of play you know, with with these new technologies to create stuff that I probably haven't even thought of yet, you know? If you were to write another book, what would it be about? Ah, that's a good question. Um, so I'm actually, I am writing a new book. Um, so I lived at the Chelsea Hotel in New York. So I had the penthouse there uh, for three years before it all got closed down and went to hell. Um so it's called The Last Chelsea Girl. And I had gotten about 65,000 words into it as a memoir before I decided that I didn't want to write a memoir. <laughs> um, so my first book was a memoir. And that's a, and, and it, it's because I had a great story to tell about the rise and fall of China's first burlesque club and what it's like to do business and, you know, and, and, and run a nightclub and fall in love and all these kind of things um, in China. Um, and it was a really special time in China too, because um, it was right during the economic crisis in the West, and they were really opening up to foreigners at that point, or so we thought. Um, so I thought that this next book was going to be a memoir, and I, I kind of, um, yeah, it felt, it felt a, mm, a bit too personal, maybe. So, um, so what I've done is I've actually decided to fictionalize it, which has opened up um, whole new possibilities. Because uh, so a lot of I don't know if you're familiar with the Chelsea Hotel, but it's it's like famously where like Sid killed Nancy, and you know everybody lived there like Janis Joplin, Patti Smith, Jimi Hendrix, um, you know like the list just goes on. Like I lived in the penthouse, I had the largest private rooftop garden in Manhattan, and uh, it's where Arthur Miller and 
Marilyn Monroe spent their honeymoon. So, I mean, it just is full of legends, full of myths. And, um, and by kind of fictionalizing it, what I can do is bring in those kind of characters that have all this kind of lore um, and, uh, and kind of tell their stories as well. Uh, so that's what I'm working on at the moment. Mm-hmm. When are you planning to finish it? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, well, definitely next year. So, Amelia, what's in store for you in coming months um, or perhaps on the other side of the Christmas? Yeah, sure. Um, so this side of the year, I am speaking in Paris uh, at Virtuality. And then I am in uh, Brazil in Rio speaking at ASA and then Sao Paulo at SIM. And then I'll be at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, uh, which I'm looking forward to, of course. And then I'm speaking at a medical conference in January. And then in February, on the 11th, I am hosting the XR Summit in Amsterdam, which is part of ISE. And I'm going to be delivering a little keynote. So I'll be doing my top 10 coolest trends in tech in the XR space. So I'm looking forward to that. And then also I have uh, the big reveal, which is my innovation newsletter that comes out once a month. And it's also a YouTube channel. So that is uh, my top 10 coolest things I've seen that month that I think that people um, should know about. And it's free. Um, You can subscribe on my website, ameliacallman.com. And it's just a service I like to offer people because I think that it's a way people can stay up to date with the latest cool tech and make them sound cool at that conferences and dinner parties when people say, oh, you know, have you seen this cool new thing, you know? For those who would like to find out more, what's the best way to get in touch with you, check out your website, your social media channels? Yeah, sure. It's all my name. So Amelia, A-M-E-L-I-A, Coleman, K-A-L-L-M-A-N, dot com or on Twitter. And then also on Twitter, I have the big reveal UK. Uh, Yeah, that's the best way. And we'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes below. I ask this question every single one of my guests, but your situation is quite different because you're such an extraordinary example of transformation and flexibility and diving to all kinds of different things that are very different from one to another. So what would be one piece of advice that you can pass to somebody young and aspiring who just wants to succeed in the industry? And I'm, I'm not being specific here. I'm not talking about audio or VR. So for me, what I've found has been important in my career is um, is being uh, curious and enthusiastic, and and um, you know most of the careers that I've started, I've gone into, you know, obviously not an expert in, but it's that curiosity, enthusiasm, and drive, a combination of those um, that has really. Um, helped me, I think, to succeed. Um, For young people starting out, I would say do as much as you can, you know, do those internships, you know, like if you've got to start out low, like, you know, do it if it's, if it's in the industry that you love um, and you want to, um, to see. Um, I would say also like, you know, I never thought that I would be some kind of insurance expert. Like I was an actress growing up. Like, you know, that sounds completely implausible, but it's, but it's not, it actually, you know, it uses skills in different ways. So I think, um, you know, it's very easy 
for people to think that they had to be in a box. Like I remember in New York, I, I dated someone once who said, just pick one thing and be really good at it. And or otherwise people won't take you seriously, you know, but I have kind of found the opposite. Like I, I'm also an artist, like I'm a writer, like it's all these different things, but they, they contribute to, um, to, to each other. You know, if I didn't have my art, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be good at technology and the same kind of thing around. Um, and then I guess also this has been a life lesson for me is, um, knowing when to speak up, when to ask for more money, when to, um, you know, take your future into your own hands and not let other people kind of, um, maybe make decisions for you. Um, I know that I have spent time, um, at a lower pay grade than, some of the men that worked around me for a long time. And, uh, and I was absolutely furious when I found out, you know, so, um, but had I just had the confidence to say, you know, this is what I'm worth, you know, I, I expect this, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have necessarily been in that situation. So stand up for yourself, know what you're worth. Um, and, and that has, uh, that's been something I've been working on in the last couple of years and it's worked out good. So and those are certainly very valuable lessons, no matter who you are and where you're from. Thank you for sharing your story. Amelia, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Before you go, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the immersive audio podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast hosted by Oliver Cadell with guest Amelia Kalman. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Michelle Chan with the help of Shane O'Hare and included music by Nob Bergamo. If you can, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out in pushing our show further. The podcast is also available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes and other episodes. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.